everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. I'm your host, Taylor Rockwell. Daryl is in Boston, though he will be joining me a little later on. But for now, for today, I'm going to be talking to Joe Lowry about the U.S. men's national team, their upcoming game against Mexico on Friday night. Uh, we get into the identity and tactics of the current team, uh, who Joe would like to see get more time with the men's national team, and what he will be watching for Friday night, as well as a bit about how we've seen Berhalter's squad evolve, and then we get into some listener questions. There's a good number of questions in there. We try to answer as many as we can. We also talk statistics at the very end, which I promise is more interesting than it otherwise might sound. Uh, So with all that said, I will turn it over to me talking to Joe. Joining me now, I've got my friend and yours, and I say that for real because we love having Joe on the show. We think of Joe as a friend even though we've never met Joe because he insists on living on the West Coast, but it's Joe Lowry of The Athletic. Hello, Joe. Hi, Taylor. How you doing? Doing well, doing well. It is strange to think about. Like, we've had this experience before with a few people that we've talked to them like five and six times for like hour-long shows or 40-minute shows, depending on which way this one goes. Uh, and yet we've never met. And we've never met Joe. So we'll have to remedy that at some point. Uh, may- maybe maybe if, if and when Phoenix gets their expansion MLS franchise and we go there for the All-Star game, we can hang out. I like it. That sounds good. Let's pencil that in. <laughs> but until then, um, we're going to keep having Joe on to discuss uh, the U.S. national team, the tactics they utilize, uh, Greg Berhalter, the roster, all of those uh, many, many things. And I actually wanted to start uh, with the roster, if that works for you, Joe, because um, I'm wondering basically how do you treat roster releases? Because I think Daryl tends to get kind of excited about them. He's always pretty amped up for them. He always knows the exact time or the exact day that they're going to be coming out and kind of looks forward to it. I sort of don't. I'm sort of just like, yeah, okay, we'll see how it goes. And I can't tell if that's because I'm just used to like the negativity around the team or I'm still a little bit frustrated by the failure to qualify. And so I'm, I'm genuinely not sure why it's the case, and I'm wondering where you are on this one. Do you get pretty excited for new rosters, or is it just sort of a, a meh experience? I think I still do get excited okay. for rosters coming out. I'm not quite uh, completely jaded to the national team yet. <laughs> so I like to keep some optimism. I guess I'm a little bit more like Daryl in that All regard. Right. But this this roster release was a little bit different because Taylor Twelman kind of mm-hmm. leaked the the main parts that everyone wanted to know about in terms of some of the younger guys, some of the new guys that we wanted to see or were hoping to see on this roster. So I guess in that case, I wasn't as you know, as amped when the roster, the full Mm. official roster came out. But I do get excited still, for sure. And then were there names that you would have liked to see? Obviously, the players that are injured, uh, not going to be there. Uh, Adams, Yedlin, Miazga, there's always one in there that I forget that I should probably remember, but don't. Tyler, I said Adams already. I can't remember. But there's like four (laughs) missing. There's a couple who declined uh, the invitation for whatever reason. Uh, But were there names that maybe were left off, not for those reasons that you would have liked to see included? Or were you pretty okay with this squad as it is? it is i mean realistically so there are two guys that i kind of in my heart of hearts would like to see on Mm -hmm. this roster one of them is darlington nagby and we kind of understand that that's probably not going to happen at this point given he seems like he's declined multiple call-ups from that story that paul tenorio wrote uh a week or so ago so it doesn't seem like nagby is is likely to make it back in the team in the near future at least and then chris richards is the other guy Mm -hmm. Uh, he's, he's been getting some buzz on twitter this week and He's just so fantastic. He's a great player, but I I never expected him to be in the roster, so I'm not disappointed, if that makes sense. That does make sense, but I would like to stick with Nagby for a moment because we hear about Nagby a lot. Uh, There was some enthusiasm for him to get called up for this roster and then obviously some disappointment when he declined it or wasn't interested or whatever the story might be there. Why did you want to see him on the roster? I kind of just want something different, right? I I don't think that Darlington Nagby is this 
international game changer. I don't I don't think he's quite capable of that. He is very skilled and very good at a lot of different things. Not so good at some other things. But if I had the choice between kind of getting another look at Christian Roldan in Berhalter's lineup or getting to see Darlington Nagby, who we haven't gotten a chance to watch under Berhalter yet, I choose Nagby. So it's not that I'm you know the biggest Nagby fan on the planet, but I do think getting a little variety in there and seeing some different guys has value. Well, let's let's stick with that idea for a moment because uh, 15 players, I think it is, that are on this roster were in the Gold Cup. Uh, Bradley, Altador, Ariola aren't there for varying reasons. Uh, Adams, Miazga, Yedlin, ah, uh, Wea, Timothy Wea, that's the one I forgot. They're there all not go. there due to injury. Um, but like like Berhalter's talked about this roster construction and has basically said like he wants to sort of have the core that then he can bring in other pieces to see if they fit or don't fit or how they fit into it. And with that in mind, with everything I've just said there, like. Do you feel like if everyone is fit, we're sort of in a position where we know what his maybe 20 to 21 preferred players are going to be if he has to create a roster right now? I think we do, yeah, because you see some different guys on this roster. Just kind of looking at the midfielders, you see Alfredo Morales, who kind of called, got called in, at least in my mind, potentially because Tyler Adams wasn't available. And you see, you know, Jackson Ewell maybe taking Michael Bradley's spot. You know, we can we can make guesses about that, but... I do think that if everyone is healthy, Berhalter probably has a sound idea of what his preferred 20, you know, 20 whatever roster is. I think we would see guys like Tyler Adams in the mix, uh, Michael Michael Bradley, Josie Altador. Those three guys I think would absolutely be in this team. DeAndre Yedlin, I'm not too sure about yet. Probably he would be in. Tim Weah would absolutely be getting looks. So I think we can take... You know, we can extrapolate from the guys that are on this roster some of the repeated names and combine those guys with the injured players or the guys who haven't been released from their MLS teams or, you know, Paul Ariola, Michael Bradley, Josie Altador, et cetera. I think we do have a good idea of the pool that Berhalter is drawing from at the moment. And I think, like, to go back to my sort of meh approach to roster releases, like, I do think that that's, it's a weird sort of Com- combination of of oddness here because it's like that's not the best way to phrase it but basically it's like i want there to be a core that i sort of know is going to be called in we like they know the system they know how they're going to play and then i want there to be a little bit of that experimentation that definitely appeals to me that's something that i think has been lacking in the past but simultaneously i think because there's like i'm sort of down on some of these players and there's so much debate about some of them where half the fan base thinks michael bradley's the best thing or is a good thing half the fan base thinks he's the worst same for josie Altador, same for Jesse Zardes, it, it sort of feels like we're in this state where like we know the kind of core squad, and yet we also know that core squad is going to create a lot of frustration. And so again, it makes it hard for me to like super get on board with an idea that I think in the past I would have been very excited about. Oh, I completely agree with that. It, you know, the backlash when Will Trap inevitably starts against Mexico, mm-hmm. it's just, I mean, that's exactly what you're talking about, right? It's gonna there yep. always is going to be dissent just because not only do people have preconceived ideas about some of these guys, some of those ideas might be fair, some of them might not be fair, but just because of the limitations of the current player pool, that's always going to be an argument. There's always going to be discussion about that. So until we, we have actual depth and a, and a lot of qualities at all of these positions, there's always going to be some debate and, and people are going to be unhappy. So that just kind of comes with the territory of the pool at the moment, I think. That's, all right, that's fair. That makes me feel a little bit better. Uh, and then the other thing that has made me feel better is the idea that we have like like 
identifiable tactics, which is not always a thing that's been the case <laughs> in the past. And in discussing this roster, Berhalter has talked a lot about the kind of different concepts he wants to utilize or has already utilized. Uh, one of the ones that I'm interested in is his idea of a system and principles of play that like we just want to have like certain core ideas down that we know and then kind of it's not necessarily dependent on the formation or who starts where, but sort of everybody knowing their role. And so with that said, I'm going to give you the difficult task of like if you were defining the U.S.'s style of approach style of player like their overall approach right now under Burhalter, what would that be not necessarily in terms of what has it been from game to game but sort of what are the maybe concepts that you see reappear consistently so some of the concepts i think that Burhalter, if, if you asked him i think he would answer that some of those main principles of play are uh, high pressing not all the time but picking selective mm-hmm. moments to high press counter pressing maybe is a better term for that just trying to trying to be active defensively uh, here down here in Phoenix, the team Phoenix Rising calls it offensive defending. So kind of making, <laughs> don't, not thinking of it as a, a defensive thing, a lackadaisical kind of oh well, let's just get the ball back eventually. No, it's a, it's an active approach to defending. So I think that active defending is something that Berhalter definitely preaches and practices with this team. Offensively, I think it's about very disciplined possession. So like you talked about in the intro, kind of to this question, the players. It's not so much about where they're starting. It's kind of where they're ending up throughout the possessions. So, you know, we could see the team lined up technically in a 4-3-3 at kickoff. But, you know, then six guys might move spots a little bit and rotate and and be flexible in possession. So I think Brawlter, he encourages flexibility. He encourages rotations on the ball, but in a structured fashion. He doesn't want chaos. He doesn't want guys running into each other off the ball, making runs into the same space at the same time. It is structured possession, but it has to be flexible. It has to be fluid in order to, he would probably say, unbalance the opposition. I think he said that, you know, a hundred times. So that's that's kind of his, as I understand it at least, his offensive principle is based off of unbalancing the opposition, drawing opposing defenders out, making uh, making gaps, and then passing through those gaps. And I think that's the area that maybe the U.S. hasn't done as well is they they're capable of possessing and they're capable of moving the ball in possession the players are are good enough to do that but maybe there can be some improvements in the final third in terms of their ability to capitalize once they have created those gaps maybe capitalizing and moving into that space that they've opened up that could be something to watch for in these couple of friendlies to see if there's any improvement over what we've seen so far in that area all right well, well let's let's continue with that then because uh, obviously we're going to be playing mexico friday night i went back and read your sort of tactical review for the athletic uh from the gold cup final which was uh very well done and had uh handy gifts for explaining all of your points which i also very much <laughs> appreciated uh we, like Looking back on that game, are there things that you're going to be like you want to see the U.S. try to do or not try to do in this game to sort of show that they've learned from the experience in that Gold Cup final? Yeah, there are two things. I was thinking about this uh, the last couple of days, too. Hooray. All right, in, in, a re- in a rematch with Mexico, we're on the same page in that respect. So uh, Mexico spent a lot of time building up in a 3-4-3 shape. They would have uh, it's an Alvarez drop between their two center backs. Mm-hmm. And I think personally, I think that that back three gave the United States this front two some trouble in terms of trying to stop Mexico's buildup. So that's one thing that I would I would look at to see how Berhalter responds and how he structures his defensive shape against uh, Mexico. I think it's possible that he switches the defensive shape up a little bit instead of that base 4-4-2. Maybe it's something more like a 5-4-1 or, or I guess a 3-4-3. Those are the same thing. That way you match up a little bit better with Mexico's buildup shape. So 
that's one thing I'm going to be keeping my eye on that I'd like to see maybe the U.S. address a little bit. And then the other thing is playing through Mexico's pressure. So kind of on the, the other side of the coin, Mexico pressed the United States pretty well, especially in that second half. I think there was a disconnect between Berhalter's ideas of wanting to play through that pressure. There was disconnect between that and between the players abilities and between the players mindsets i'm not sure the players were up to to playing through that aggressive pressure and so they kind of defaulted to playing long a little Mm -hmm. bit and so there was a real issue between those two ideas so i think coming back getting a rematch with mexico coming in with a clear idea and being prepared to face being prepared to face that high pressure not being surprised by it in any way could give the United States a little bit of a boost compared to the last time they faced off against Mexico. And and I wanted to give you kudos there because uh, when we watched that game, when Daryl and I went back and rewatched the USA-Mexico game, there were times when Zach Steffen went long. There were times when the center backs went long. And there were moments where we thought like, oh, maybe this is a deliberate tactic of Mexico pressing their committed numbers forward and the United States is backing themselves to kind of hit on the break and have Josie Alcidor win balls. Uh, in your review of that game, you sort of spotted that goal kicks were being taken long or Zach Steffen was playing long. And that wasn't necessarily a hallmark of Greg Berhalter. And then this week on Extra Time, uh, he talked about that and basically said, yeah, that was a sign that things were not working. And that's a thing we've been working on. So I think right there, first of all, is a good sign as to why we like talking to Joe because he's he's smart. Uh, But then also, it does seem to be like an area that they're going to be working on. So I am kind of expecting the United States to try to play out of the back and almost have that sort of like at times suicidal approach to it of like, look, we're just going to stick with it and see what happens because watching some of the clips that you posted, it felt like they could have stuck with it longer and there were sort of short passes on, but under that press from Mexico, they just sort of withered and I think didn't want to be the ones to make a mistake. So like Aaron Long is the one that stands out on one of those clips that he has Weston McKinney central, but just chooses not to play it there. And I think it's because he's scared of what could happen and still instead goes long. And so I guess my hope uh, at the end of this long rambling explanation is that we do see the United States back themselves a little bit more to play out of pressure as opposed to just looking long and hoping for something uh, on the counter. And I think John Brooks is potentially a guy that could help out a lot with that. Brooks is a guy who who I think of, I try to try to figure out where I would put him on the field for the U.S. because if you leave him as that left-sided center back and have kind of have him in the Tim Ream role, mm-hmm. then maybe he gets a little bit exposed if, if Mexico or you know Uruguay or whoever counters down that side because he's I don't think he's the most mobile guy he's got long legs but I'm not sure he's he's particularly adept defensively I'm willing I'm willing to be proven wrong on that but at the moment that's kind of my perception of him but regardless of kind of the defensive structural problems that he could create I think John Brooks absolutely has the potential to help the U.S. kind of take that suicidal do or die approach of building out from the back because he is so good on the ball so a couple other like specific positions i'd like to hear your thoughts on let's start with number six um who would you most like to see tried there given the absence of michael bradley will trap obviously on the roster you mentioned jackson you will earlier maybe afredo morales uh berhalter has seemed to indicate he does not want to go with weston mckinney there i'm wondering who you would like to see and then maybe who you think we'll see I'm glad you were the one who asked Berhalter about Weston McKinney in that conference call was, from what yes. I understand. So because on paper, he is the guy who I would be interested most in seeing there of the people available on this roster. But like you said, since we can sort of rule him out, we're likely to see McKinney somewhere else in midfield. Mm-hmm. I personally am more interested in seeing either Alfredo Morales or Jackson Ewell in that role. I think those guys are, are different players 
they have different skill sets. But compared to Will Trapp, who we've seen many times, we kind of know what he offers. He's he's good at some things, really not good at, at many other things. He's a pretty limited guy, not overly mobile defensively. And all that said, I think we absolutely will see Will Trapp once or or twice in these two friendlies. But personally, if I had to pick, I would say Jackson Ewell just because I want to see I want to see him in midfield for someone other than Mateus Almeida. Not mm-hmm. that what Almeida is doing in San Jose isn't remarkable because it, it really is. But getting a look at Jackson Ewell, we've seen him once before with the national team, but getting another look in a in a maybe a more structured environment with more of the first choice guys out on the field than he played with and that friendly against Jamaica before the Girl Cup, Gold Cup, I think I can could be really fun. Alfredo Morales, again, as a guy who we haven't seen in a couple of years now, getting a look at what he provides, what he can bring in midfield, maybe a little bit more bite than either Yule or Will Trap can offer. But kind of my motto is anybody but Will Trap, but I know that that's not going to pan out. Um, well, one reason why it might not, uh, Berhalter said in an interview with Paul Tenorio for The Athletic, uh, he talked about why he likes to utilize Bradley and Trap as deep-lying central midfielders. Um, and a big reason seemed to be their ability to like switch the point of attack, specifically the sort of, we call it the Michael Bradley ball, but like the diagonal over-the-top ball past that fullback into the channel for someone to run, run onto. It seems like that's a thing he uh, prizes in that number six spot, the ability to play that sort of ball. We know Bradley can do it. My assumption is that Will Trapp can do it. But are there other players either in this roster or playing in a similar role in Major League Soccer or elsewhere that you think are equally capable of that sort of ball? Is Jackson Ewell one of those? I absolutely think Jackson Ewell is one of those. There have been a few clips I've seen, and I've watched some film extensively of him and doing some analysis of San Jose, but I've seen a few clips where Ewell almost almost just slaps the ball with his foot. He, like it, He's hitting it so cleanly that it, it looks like what would happen if you hit something with your hand. It, just the level of coordination that comes with that. I think Jackson Ewell absolutely can hit those diagonal balls. Maybe not quite at the Michael Bradley level yet, just because he is a younger player who hasn't had as many first-team minutes and hasn't been in that situation as many times, but he absolutely has the potential to do that. Morales, I don't know. I'd be lying if I said I've seen maybe more than 45 minutes of him or of Fortuna Dusseldorf over the last year or two. So I'm not going to hedge my bets on that one one way or the other. Really, I'm just hoping that Tyler Adams is sitting in Leipzig rehabbing from his groin injury and or adductor injury i'm not sure and just pinging balls back and forth i'm sure that's great for his rehab but that's that's kind of the answer to this question right is ideally we want tyler adams at that number six spot and if berhalter doesn't think he can hit that ball he's not going to play there so of the guys on this roster jackson newell probably is the other one besides trap all right but I hope it's Adams. <laughs> well, okay, let's stick with Adams then. Uh, because Berhalter said uh, he, he wants to continue to use fullbacks who can basically uh, come into central midfield uh, and kind of influence games that way when the United States wants to control the ball more. Uh, but then he ha- he also acknowledged that like players like Cannon, and I'm assuming Dest, he said Cannon, but I'm guessing Dest, uh, have that kind of speed and the verticality to attack down the flank, and he wants to utilize that there, especially when there are wingers that want to tuck inside, I think was the quote. So the way I'm choosing to read that is basically, I'm going to play an attacking fullback at right back unless Tyler Adams is available, and then maybe Nick Lima, and then maybe they'll go central. That's about where I'm seeing it. But do you think there's a chance we, with the kind of depth we now seem to have at right back, that we do see Tyler Adams kind of consistently tried in midfield more? Or for the time being, would you expect him to be a right back uh, who eventually plays central midfield when the situation allows? I think the arrival of Serginho Dez into this team even though Adams isn't in this roster with Dest I think Dest's call-up kind of allows Adams a little bit more freedom to play midfield if that's Mm -hmm. something that Berhalter is comfortable with 
which I think he should be, allowing Adams to play in midfield and then Serginho Dest to kind of roam the right side. I, Dest, I think, is absolutely also capable of tucking into midfield and, and playing that Nick, Nick Lima role, as, we, as we've called it. I think Dest is totally capable of doing that, which does free up Adams to play midfield full-time. But in my mind, it still comes down to what Berhalter's impression of Adams' offensive capabilities is. If Berhalter doesn't think that he can play that metronomic uh, sort of deep-lying midfield role that that he really likes Bradley and Trapp in, then I think we'll still see Adams at right back tucking into midfield occasionally. Otherwise, if, if Berhalter's opinion of Adams is a little bit more positive, then I think there's nothing stopping him from playing that number six role full-time. Much, much more still to come from my conversation with Mr. Joe Lowry. But first, I wanted to talk to the man who Joe Lowry is replacing just for today and from the West Coast. It's Daryl Grove from the East Coast. Hello, Daryl. Hello. I'm jealous that you get to talk to Joe Lowry. You should be. He's smart. He real smart. <laughs> uh, we haven't gotten to it yet in this point of the show, but there's definitely a moment near the end where I compare myself to a toddler trying to do math, I think it was. So, uh, yeah, Joe's smart by comparison. Oh, is that the statistics part of the show? That may well be the statistics part, yes. Yeah, I've heard tell of this on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. I tried my best. It was definitely <laughs> like I, – I, I don't know. I felt like he was trying to explain like how the earth is round to somebody who just didn't get it. So that, that's, uh, that's how that was working out for me. You are famously a flat earther, right? Uh, I, w- I was thinking more like in the like Columbus era, but even then they knew the earth was round back then. They knew the earth was round with like the ancient Greeks. So that one doesn't really work so well, <laughs> except for Kyrie Irving. I don't know where he is on the flat earth thing these days. But uh, yeah, no, not, not so much flat earth, but still statistics confuse me a little bit. Are you more inclined to trust statistics? Actually, I know we talked about this recently. I mean, I trust them, but I don't use them as the be all and end all right mm. i feel like you've got to marry it with the eye test i'm going to guess that was joe's answer as well i mean it's yeah which is kind of where the conversation goes is about sort of using statistics versus statistics like as evidence essentially yeah if that you can't sense. just use it as a, as a, a bludgeon you've nope. got to have some <laughs> some nuance to it that you've actually watched the game yourself and decided uh and had an opinion based on what you've seen and speaking of nuance should we talk about today's sponsor (laughs) yeah (laughs) which is my way of not transitioning with any level of nuance today's show (laughs) is brought to you by HelloFresh, america's number one meal kit delivery service uh it is easy it's the easiest way to get simple seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door daryl grove and if you're bad at cooking, mm-hmm. you're no longer bad at cooking because HelloFresh makes cooking <laughs> delicious meals at home um, a reality regardless of your comfort in the kitchen. If you don't know what knife does what, don't matter. HelloFresh will help you figure it out. First of all, I feel like we just got a brummy accent from you with the didn't matter. Uh, but second, <laughs> like, what, what do you mean? Do you mean like you're aware that a butter knife isn't used for like carving meat, correct? I mean, now you've just told me I am. Okay, that's good. <laughs> but I am with you, though, that you do – there do seem to be a lot of knives that seem to have different purposes that I take very seriously, and then I find out <laughs> I'm wrong about what those purposes might be. And the bigger thing with HelloFresh mm-hmm. is I, I am um, a ingredient uh, villain in terms of just getting the wrong amount – literally the wrong amount of stuff each time. <laughs> always too much. Always too much of a thing. Um, like too much salt or yep. too much whatever. Um, so th- with HelloFresh, you get the pre-measured ingredients, which means I can't that mistake. I can't make that mistake. Do you mean you Much buy- like Johan Cruyff, before I make that mistake, I don't, I don't make, make that, that mistake. mistake. There we go. Do you mean you <laughs> buy too many ingredients or you utilize too much of the ingredient or both? I put too much in the thing. Ah, okay. I put too much <laughs> in the thing is definitely the best way to explain that one. Yeah. Um, so you I can- This could use a bit more lemon, right? <laughs> See, that? yeah, that's what I always do. 
I'm always like a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, and then suddenly it's all lemon. Then you have to balance that out, and then you've balanced it out too much, and then it's just this whole mess. Uh, instead, with HelloFresh, as Daryl said, it's like pre-measured ingredients. You've got the recipe card to help you make sure that you're on track so that you can break out of your dinner rut, or if your rut is uh, poorly cooking meals, then you can definitely break out of that one with their 20-plus seasonal chef-curated recipes each week. It's also flexible, so you mm-hmm. can change your delivery days, you can change your food preferences, and you can even skip a week whenever you need. Say, you know, if you're going to be, say, if you're in Boston unexpectedly, mm-hmm. no. semi regularly, and you need to skip a week of HelloFresh deliveries, you can do that. And then you have additional add ons like garlic bread and cookie dough. Both of those sound, if not calorically good for you, like good for <laughs> you in terms of like, you know, spiritual well being of eating garlic bread and cookie dough. Maybe not all at once. Uh, good for and- your taste buds. It's definitely good for your taste buds. Again, not all at once. And another thing that's uh, very good is that you can get $80 off your first month of HelloFresh by going to HelloFresh.com slash TSS80 and entering the promo code TSS80. Once again, that's HelloFresh.com slash TSS80. And the promo code is TSS80 for $80 off your first month of HelloFresh. Sounds like a good deal to me. It certainly does. Thank you very much to HelloFresh for sponsoring today's episode. Daryl, I need to ask you now. Joe and I have talked about uh, a decent amount of the roster at this point, much more still to come. But a big thing for me has been, like, what has Joe enjoyed about the Burhalter era? How has he sort of seen the team evolve? And sort of, like, basically, what would he say is, like, the identifying characteristics of this team? Because I wanted to sort of get an idea of what... I should be looking for what he'll be looking for in this game against Mexico to see how the team takes its next step. So that's like kind of theoretical, a lot of like coaching, t- like coaching ideas and philosophy in there. I want a little bit more specifics from you. Are there like players okay. that you really, really want to see or things you definitely want to see, like measurable things that you want to see uh, against Mexico? Yeah. Can we start with things I want to see? Sure. And it's um, the defensive side of the game. Okay. Um, do you remember, like I was quite happy with the, the possession soccer and the like interchange of positions mm-hmm. and the way we opened up space and created chances throughout the Gold Cup. But I was never fully happy with the defending, um, especially against Mexico. Uh, do you remember our whole our Gold Cup final review was a mm-hmm. lot about like we just didn't have a defensive game. Yep. And I think we tried we tried pressing in a four four two. We tried pressing in a four three three, but it was never quite enough to really cause Mexico trouble. So I want to see some sort of defensive game plan that actually stymies Mexico. So you basically want to see Tata Martino sweating, not from the temperature, but from like anxiety. Yes. You want to see a nervous yes. Tata Martino on the sideline. Nervous Tata. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> All right. All right. I like that. So number one measurable thing, nervous Tata. We'll see if we get that one. <laughs> what about what about specific players? Are there players you want to see? And then, or not even what you want to see, because like, I'm guessing you won't be satisfied with a like, two-minute Sergino Dest cameo. I guess you'll take it if that's all we have. But, like, I, I know you want to see Sergino Dest. How many minutes do you want to see from him against Mexico? Mm, it depends how many he gets against Uruguay, right? Mm-hmm. If he gets 15 against Mexico mm-hmm. but then starts against Uruguay, I'm a happy, happy Daryl. Okay. You know so, what I mean? Yeah. But then the, but then the flip side, I'm, I'm going through this argument in my head right now, is if, if we're picking a team to beat Mexico, which is, you know, Mexico friendlies are not really friendlies, right, because they've got that – rivalry aspect to it to it is an is an uncapped Sergino Dest part of our best answer to beat in Mexico I honestly don't know the answer to that or is like a more experienced more internationally experienced Reggie Cannon who's already faced Mexico 
like a better fit to to play them uh next friday i mean the obvious answer is we don't know because we're not in camp but it stands to reason based on like past teams and past lineups that even if dest is having a very solid camp we probably don't see as much of him uh against mexico we probably don't see him starting against mexico so i'm gonna say like if we see him making a cameo appearance or getting some minutes near the end um, I will be okay with it. What I would be happier with is if we see him as a substitute for a specific reason. If it's we're trying yeah. to see the game out and we game want some, yeah, if we want some fresh legs as a right back, or if it's like maybe we want some fresh legs and we need a bit more attacking flair if we're chasing the game or it's still nil nil, then you see him brought in. But I want him brought in for like a reason as opposed to eh, we'll just throw him in there and then if it's a bad game we can say like yeah, but Dest got his first cap, so that's good. Well, I floated this idea to you um, off air. Yeah. I, I've heard Greg Berhalter talk about wanting to give young players a platform to succeed. And part of me thinks that might lead to Greg Berhalter giving Dest his debut on the wing instead of at fullback. Like he could, I could see him coming in for the last 15 minutes and playing right wing or left wing because then there's no danger of him being exploited defensively. He doesn't have to go up against Chucky Lozano or Tecatito or Pizarro. And he can just like do what he does in terms of going at people and just, uh, you know, showing off some of his attacking ability. Um, I, I think there's a realistic chance that that might happen. So when you say, uh, I, I'm not sure I agree, but I'm not sure I disagree either. When you say you want to like give him the platform or you think Berhalter wants to give him the platform, in this case, would that platform be to specifically to showcase the attacking talent? Yeah, just it's just an easier debut, right? If your only responsibility is go out and attack and not defend Chucky Lozano mm-hmm. um, and also join the attack, it's just a, it's a slightly simpler job, right? It's a, it's at least you're less at risk of being exploited in any way. Yeah, but maybe yeah. I'm maybe I'm being too protective of Des thinking it that way. Maybe I should be thinking about him as a defensive weapon as well as an attacking weapon. I mean, I mean, you can think about Sergio Dest however you want, my friend. But like, I, I. The reason why I'm hesitant to see him as an attacker is, or like utilized in that way, is just because I want to see a little bit more like logical progression. And like, I guess what I fear is like in my brain, this is a really weird way to explain this, but like, if you bring him in as a wide attacking player, like to see what he can do offensively, then in my mind, it's like, oh, that's where he's going to be utilized. And so then if in the next two games he plays at right back for the the national team, then I'm a bit more like, well, what was the point of that? Was it just to get him on the field? Are we going to see him as an attacking player? I I mean, I think of him as someone who's very, very versatile. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, he played on the wings for Ajax, right? Even this season, he's come in and played on the wings. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we have to stick him with one position and say, this is all you're allowed to do. Like, I think it's fine to play a bit on the wing against Mexico and play fullback against Uruguay. He, I mean, if he can do it all, then let him do it all. Yeah, okay. I, that's that's a fair point. I think because I've seen him as a fullback for Ajax and for the national team specific, or for the U twenties specifically, I do yeah. probably like just think of him as a right back, and that is maybe like the limiting thing of yeah. seeing a player one way. Is a player can be lots of different things depending on the situation. And I, and I okay. don't, I don't, I don't disagree that that's his primary position. Mm-hmm. It's just that he's capable of playing elsewhere. And I look at the roster and I see Cannon, Lima, Dest, and I'm, I'm thinking that's too many right backs. And I see Corey Baird. And I think, who would I rather have playing on the wing, Corey Baird or Sergino Dest? Does it feel, speaking of that, and also agree, but speaking of that, does it feel like Nick Lima is ultimately going to be, like, missing out here? Because if you're going to carry a right back who can do, like, if Berhalter still wants to do the right back to center midfield role, that feels like Tyler Adams. If he wants to do the bombing forward thing, then that feels like Reggie Cannon 
or Serginho Dest. And it kind of leaves Nick Lima as like, you're not going to carry four right backs on the roster like, in a 23-man squad. So it yeah. feels like it's going to be you one who does... You Yedlin as well. Oh, yeah, yeah of course, of course. Well. So like, it feels yeah. like if you're going to carry one of each, it's not going to be Nick Lima. And though he's been there so many times, it, it's, it starts to feel like maybe we're going to see less and less of him, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but you, you feel for him a little bit. And yeah, he keeps playing well. He does. Every time he's on yeah. the field, he plays really well. Yeah. I think he's making it really hard for Bellhalter in a lot of ways. So right back is now our, our new spot where we have like uh, a, a lot of depth all of a sudden. Yeah, too many players. All right. Too many players. All right. So you, you want to see Sergio Dest make his appearance. You want to see uh, like a coherent defensive plan that seems to make sense and is effective. I would agree with both of yeah. those things. Any other, uh, any other things in particular? Yeah, one very specific thing. This isn't just a Bowser thing, but a thing I want to see from a player mm-hmm. is I want to see Josh Sargent, um, one, on the field, mm-hmm. but two, <laughs> I want to see Josh Sargent doing that thing that Bellhalter asks his strikers to do where they come deep, mm-hmm. receive the ball, like even from a defender who breaks the lines along the ground with a pass or something, receives the ball and lays it off. Right, the thing that we've seen Zardes do, and it, you know, it looks a little awkward when Zardes does it, but he does it, and we've seen Altidore do it a lot, a little more smoothly. Mm-hmm. But I'd like to see Josh Sargent doing that because I still think of him as someone who's very good at uh, running in behind, like you know, his goal for Bremen at the weekend, right? That was very much about um, sprinting behind the opposition defense and st- yep. but staying onside. Um, I want so we know he can do that, and obviously, I'd like to see him do it for the national team. But I'd also like to see him come deep and connect play because then we would know we've got this sort of rounded striker who could play as a lone striker um, in Josh Sargent. Yes, and I, I agree with, with that entirely because what my mind goes to is like, well, we've seen him do it for the national team already, and then I think, well, it was against Bolivia's C team, so yeah. maybe less so. Yeah, maybe you and I could have so. done that. <laughs> you could have. I don't know about me, but yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm with you that I want to see him do that against uh, uh, tougher opposition. Whether or not he gets a chance to, I don't know. I hope he starts, I think, just because, for, to your point, I want to see if he can do that against against more difficult opposition. And I do think yeah. we're going to see a renewed emphasis from the U.S. on playing out of the back, on maintaining the ball, on keeping possession. Joe and I talked a lot about that. So I want to see how Josh Sargent can help or not help, in which case we've got some kind of questions answered there. So I, I, I echo that one as well. So there's three things from Daryl. Uh, obviously, you and I are going to be talking more about this game since we will be doing our deep dive review on uh, Friday evening. At least that's my plan. I'm guessing that, sh- that means that show is going to be out Saturday morning at some point. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Right. And I thought, we didn't say specifically, but I'm in Boston once again mm-hmm. for you know the clinical trial, yep. which we're doing tomorrow. But yeah, I'll be back Thursday night and ready to ready to watch the game with you in the studio and record on Friday. All normal right. service will resume. Normal service will resume, and normal conversation with Joe Lavery will resume in just a moment. But uh, <laughs> one final thing I wanted to do was talk about today's sponsor, our friends over at Talisman Caps. There, we've talked about yeah. Talisman Caps many times, uh, but for those who are unfamiliar unaware what is talisman caps oh so talisman caps Mm -hmm. is um it's mostly a cap company right Mm -hmm. they do t-shirts and stuff as well um but they they feature uh designs by a former mls player uh dustin who is now um this huge soccer designer and they're all sort of these beautifully iconic things right like it it could be valderrama Mm -hmm. or perlo or Katomic Blanco. One of my favorites is the Bromance cap, mm-hmm. which is uh, Obama Yang and Lacazette doing their handshake headbow uh, thing. Um, so, like, it's it, the, the caps capture a lot of those a lot of those soccer moments like that. What, why is that one of your favorite? Given that you have no connection to Arsenal, 
I just I I think I just love that celebration, I and you. I there's something about the way that image is captured that that makes sense on the cap to me. I feel like it's because it's it's a very like gentlemanly thing, and Daryl is <laughs> at his core a proper Englishman who you know bows yeah. to the Queen and whatnot. So I feel like maybe that's why you enjoy it. It's it's a good reminder of like the gentlemanly conduct of footballers. <laughs> yeah, I love a deep bow. <laughs> That that is true. Uh, So if you want to uh, rep your club, rep your hero, could be an iconic or inspired moment, uh, or if you want to like support the local collection to help grow the game at all levels of play, you can do so. As we've talked about uh, many times, they have the Street Soccer USA caps, which I wear regularly, which we very much appreciate that they offer. Um, So if you want to support a good organization, you can do it uh, that way because they've got many, many different options for you over at Talisman Caps. Yeah, including Edgewater Castle, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I think yeah, I, another great organization. I believe I have that on my head right now. I have not Do looked up. Really? It's tough to see. I think I see light blue uh, in my vision. So yes, I think it's try, there. Try looking up really hard. See, if I do that, then I'm going to be off mic, and then I'm just going to be looking. <laughs> it looks like I have acoustic foam and ceiling tiles on my head if I look straight up. So I'm not sure if that's what you were looking for or not. But if you are looking for a talisman cap, if our listeners are, and they want to get one at a discount, Daryl, how might they be able to do that? Well, first you go to talismancaps.com. Mm-hmm. That makes Link sense. Link will be in the show notes. And then for 10% off, you use the code TOTALSOCCER10. So TOTALSOCCER, the words, and then one zero, the numbers, TOTALSOCCER10 for 10% off any purchase of $35 or more. There we are. So once again, that's TOTALSOCCER10, 10% off a purchase of $35 or more. Thank you very much to Talisman Caps for sponsoring this episode of the Total Soccer Show. Thank you very much to Daryl for taking time all the way Who, from me? Boston to join me to talk a little bit USA. You are welcome. Uh, I appreciate that. See, very formal. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, Daryl, I will let you get back to, I don't know, preventing another tea party. I'm assuming that's what you're doing up there. That's, yeah, I'm on watch. Yeah, I'm making sure. <laughs> Perfect. And I will instead return uh, to myself and Mr. Joe Lowry. So we, we've talked to Adams. We've talked Bradley. Uh, we assume McKinney's going to be that number eight, as he has been. Uh, my question then becomes the number 10 role. Uh, I, I'm not, I don't want you to like necessarily have to speculate because everybody has made arguments for why Pulisic might be a number 10 or why he might be number one or why he might be wide or why that would work or why it wouldn't work. I just want to know for you personally, Joe, like where would you like to see Pulisic played in the Burhalter system? Not even in a position, but like do you think he does better for the team out wide or do you want to see him used centrally? I'm going to kind of go right down the middle of that. Right. I really like how Burhalter has Pulisic rotating in and out of those different channels on the left wing. Sometimes, I mean, what we've seen so far is him and Paul Areola interchanging. Pulisic starts central and makes the run to the wing and then receives the ball there a lot of the time. And that allows him to move from the inside out, make an inside out run and receive the ball wide and then attack the opposing fullback from there. That's the idealistic view of, of what Berhalter is trying to do. But too often right now we're seeing Pulisic come back and get the ball in midfield and try to dribble through four or five guys. And then you know he often turns the ball over and then that exposes the U.S. on the counter. Mm-hmm. So I think it still needs a little bit of tweaking. Maybe Pulisic needs a, a bit of refined mentality in terms of what his own responsibilities are. Maybe he doesn't need to over dribble quite so much in possession, things like that. But I really do like the idea that Berhalter is using of moving Pulisic back and forth on that left side. And it, like sticking with the wings, then um, I don't know if we talked about this like after the goal after the Gold Cup uh, final or just the Gold Cup in general. But from what you saw, do you have ideas about what went wrong with Tyler Boyd? I know there were conversations about like maybe he had an injury or maybe he just like Jordan Morris had the momentum or whatever it might be. But for him to go from starting 
to not starting and not really even playing, it feels to me like he got some things wrong and that he's included in this uh, camp this time around. I kind of put him in the like Sergeant and Dest area a little bit of players who, like Burhalter talked about Sergeant as being a player who responded to not making the Gold Cup by going back, working hard, uh, having a strong preseason. Now he's getting minutes. He talked about Sergino Dest having like the right career momentum. And it feels like Tyler Boyd is in a similar spot and that's why he's called in. But like, I then have this weird sort of like 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 A and then blank and then C and I'm not ch- quite sure what what the B is going to be because I don't quite understand how he gets called in he looks good in my mind then suddenly he doesn't play but now he's called back in so I'm wondering if you think there were areas that he needed to improve or if it's just kind of he's the best fit right now uh, or maybe the second best fit behind Jordan Morris. I'm not really sure what went wrong with Tyler Boyd in the Gold Cup. I think we're all kind of still wondering that a little bit. The only thing that I can really think of for why he didn't get as many minutes as the tournament went on is maybe it's that Boyd is better on the on the wide part of the right wing instead of tucking in closer to the striker and kind of playing in one of those number 10 roles, the right-sided number 10 role, and allowing Reggie Cannon to own that right the far right sideline. Maybe Berhalter prefers it when Boyd plays wide uh, and then allows someone to play more in an interior role inside of him. Hmm. But... I think as the Gold Cup went on, we saw Reggie Cannon own that right side and Jordan Morris tuck in a little bit. So maybe it's that Berhalter prefers Boyd wide but didn't want to sacrifice Reggie Cannon's defensive abilities. I don't know. I don't know the answer. I'm just mm-hmm. speculating at no, this point. No, I, I mean, I appreciate that because that that's still – and he's been asked about it like on a number of occasions. And I, like some some people will say like flat out like, oh, no, he was just injured. That's all it was. Like Berhalter was asked about it in that press conference and I think kind of danced around that and instead talked about like it just came down to – like form and momentum and Jordan Morris had more of it in that moment. So we went with him, which I feel like is coach speak for an actual thing happened. And we didn't like, or like, like right, Boyd right. wasn't doing something. And I just don't want to kind of like really out him or say exactly what it was. So it's still a thing that confuses me because I really enjoyed Tyler Boyd and I want to see more of him, but I also kind of want to see more of him in the context of like, Oh, he's not doing that thing anymore. That didn't quite work. It's just, I don't know what that thing is. Yeah, and I'm not sure we're ever going to find out because you're right. Everything I've read or heard from Berhalter, he hasn't given a specific answer. He has kind of replied in that coach speak, which is – I like that term. That's a good term for it. Um, so maybe we'll never find out. Maybe we'll find out when Tyler Boyd writes his memoirs or or maybe Tyler Boyd will dominate in this camp and no one will care ever again. I don't know. I hope we see him though. I'm excited. I think he's a skillful guy, could bring some actual attacking presence in that right wing, which – Maybe we haven't seen in, in a little bit with the national team. I, I enjoy attacking. I especially enjoy attacking <laughs> presences, and I especially enjoy goals. So I hope we get to see some of those. What are some things? What are some other things that you're going to be looking for, Joe? To sh- in terms of like the evolution of the U.S. national team, I think we actually had a list of questions about this. Yes, we did. Uh, Steve Renard asked us, uh, "What do we want to see in these friendlies that signifies further development of Greggy Ball? Uh, what could be seen uh, going the opposite way as a setback to Greggy Ball?" So I think we kind of touched on this a little bit. I want to see the U.S. have a clear idea of how they want to approach games when they're met with difficult opposition. I want to see them commit. Not that I want them to be inflexible because that's a recipe for disaster. But I want to see the U.S. come out with a strategic plan, adapt it as necessary over the course of the game, but but really stick to one principle, stick to a foundational principle that they have. So whether that's the buildup, playing short from the back, whether that's you know coming in and realizing – hey, we need to play longer over this press because we can't get through it, then that's that's also fine. But coming in with a clear idea and then a, tweaking it as necessary throughout the game was definitely something I want to see. Another thing 
a little bit more player specific is I want to see how Serginho Dest fits into this team because I, I think he could be a, a building block in this group for the next 10, you know, 15 years. That's obviously looking, putting the cart before the horse before we've even seen him with the senior national team. Mm-hmm. But he's so flexible. He can fit in so many different ways. He gives Berhalter, you know, dozens of different options in terms of personnel and, and setup and, and positions and things like that. So seeing how Dest integrates into this group and what he brings, I really do think that that could have an impact on the national team as a whole. I mean, I, I would enjoy Sergino Dest having an impact on the national team because it would make me very, very happy. And then <laughs> if he uh, chooses to play for the national national team long term, uh, even more so happy. I, I'm excited to see that. I'm excited to see Sergino Dest if we do. And I would be excited to see him tried at left back even because to me that means we're seeing a little bit more experimentation. I'm not even saying that's going to happen. But I think what I want to see coming out of this game is the USA showing that it can improve on certain aspects like we talked about with kind of the playing out of pressure and shifting their formation a little bit to deal with what Mexico offer. But what I really want to see is just a clear sign of Greg Berhalter like responding to what Tata Martino was going to do, because that was the big narrative for me of the Gold Cup final, was at, at the end of the first half, the United States had had some chances, Mexico had had some chances, it was a pretty even game, uh, but then second half, very much Mexico dominant because of the adjustments Tata Martino made, and Greg Berhalter sort of lack of a response initially, and then kind of being slow to respond once, you know, once uh, the goal happened, I mean, what, Daniel Lovitz being the final defensive sub, <laughs> like not or final sub, not really the most like inspiring thing and so what i would like to see are sort of some changes in game that really do make it seem like the chess match is happening that it's sort of like oh he's countering that move with this move oh they switched to this side oh he switched this guy to this side that's sort of what i'm looking for even if it's going to be way difficult to spot and will probably require me to watch it like two or three times uh but then i can just read your breakdown of this game and maybe that will help (laughs) as well there you go. I think I think we can make that happen. All right. All right. Uh, well, a few more uh, listener questions then, if you don't mind. Uh, one from at false fullback. Uh, what happened to all of our young center backs? Miazga, CCV, EPB. Did they find loans for the season, or will they be playing with their club youth teams? Uh, Miazga injured. CCV uh, and EPB both got loans. But do you think we see maybe the like those latter two, CCV and EPB? Uh, I'll hijack the question to ask you, Joe. Do you think we see them with the national team? Any time soon or do you think they still have way too much to work on to be called in at this point i'm not sure we're gonna see either of those guys anytime soon i think miazga like you said is is going to be back in the team at some point in the near future mm-hmm. but if you just look at the center backs that are on this roster now you've got john brooks aaron long tim ream is sort of still a center back miles robinson and walker zimmerman so that's that's a number of guys already you can't take you know seven or eight center backs realistically for these international windows so Eric Palmer Brown, if he starts, you know, actually dominating, and I think he's in Austria now, then then maybe you take a look at him. And, and same with Cameron Carter Vickers, where he's at in England. But realistically, I don't see either one of those guys back in the national team, at least in the near future. All right, uh, we'll move from younger, uh, younger-ish players to maybe uh, more mid-career folks. Uh, Section O resident on Twitter uh, asks, who are some MLS mid-career guys that you think could step in and contribute for a couple years? Not youngsters with like a hype train behind them, uh, but Section O says more so players like uh, Dax McCarty, who could kind of jump in like he did in the last cycle. Still, the guy who stands out in my mind for that is is Darlington Nagby yeah. because he is that mid-career guy, but it just doesn't seem like we're going to see him at this point. It does not. So I'm not sure other than Nagby who I would say. I mean, you have kind of the older guard a little bit. You have Graham Zuzu. 
Jersey, Benny Fail Haber, kind of that Chris Wondolowski, who was, you know, having record-breaking seasons in terms of his historical MLS career. But I just, I don't see any of those guys coming in. I think Michael Bradley and Altidore are kind of the slightly older or, or mid-career, however you want to define it, guys that are going to be staples with this team for the next couple of years. All right. Uh, and if we're looking at people who could be around in the next couple of years, uh, Accenta United, uh, Bradley and Trapp are similar type players. They sit deep as a number six and control with passing. Uh, who is the young up-and-coming player that fits uh, that profile and could fit into Greg Berhalter's system? We've talked about a few who are on this roster, but are there any other youngsters maybe coming through or with the U23s or elsewhere who you think maybe could fill that role that Berhalter might look to? Uh, Accenta United specifically asked about Chris Durkin, uh, but I'm wondering if there are other ones that you want to talk about as well Durkin is definitely the guy but the thing is with this this whole idea of having that deeper passing oriented midfielder is is and we saw this in the u20 world cup with Durkin is they can get overrun pretty easily especially when you're playing as a single pivot so Beralter plays with that double pivot partly to sort of neutralize the the deficiencies of that one specific player but just in terms of an entire trend with the youth national teams right now, I don't think we're seeing as many of those slightly one-dimensional offensive-oriented guys. So Chris Durkin, I think, is kind of a one-off a little bit in terms of the youth national teams. If you look at the Olympic, uh, the, the U23 roster that uh, Jason Kreiss is going to be leading, I don't think there's anyone that fits that description. The, the defensive midfielders really are more mobile guys. So I personally don't know if there is a direct comparison, a direct pipeline of those Michael Bradley mold midfielders. And I'm not also sure that that's a bad thing either. Why Why are you not sure that's a bad thing? I think if we're creating, if, if we're developing players that are more well-rounded in their ah, skill okay. set, obviously it's, you, want, you want players that have a specialty, right? You want the Tyler Adams who can run 40 miles in a game and, and win 27 tackles and all that stuff. You want that. But I'm not sure that you can't, you can't have your cake and eat it too in this case. I think you might actually be able to do that. You might be able to develop players that can play those diagonal balls and also you know, run 30 yards and, and block off the passing lane or, or make a tackle when needed. So that's my perspective on it at least. I'm sure we will see more players in that mold, that Michael Bradley will trap lack of mobility sort of mold, but I'm not sure that there are a ton in the youth system right now, at least that I'm aware of. That is, that is a weird like mold to be pursuing is like slow and can kick the ball diagonally. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> All right. So I take your point there. Um, two more sort of like on the periphery uh, players that we got questions about. Connor Edwards asked, what does Julian Green have to do to get caught up? Uh, what do you think his future looks like? And uh, Bart asks, how can Aaron Johansson make his way back into the men's national team short of changing his last name to Zardes? <laughs> that's good that's good um <laughs> i i want to get a disclaimer here i'd be lying if i said i've seen julian green or yep. aaron johansson play mm-hmm. in the last probably two years so just basing off of you know burhalder's comments he's talked about momentum that was kind of the buzzword that he was using at least in that extra time radio interview which was excellent by the way if you haven't listened to that you absolutely should but i think if those guys are are excelling in their leagues regardless of of where they're playing Berhalter will look at them. It's, it seems like he is keeping an eye on the senior team eligible players around the world, regardless of whether they're getting called in. He's watching film on these guys. So if Julian Green is doing something that he thinks will directly translate, or if Aaron Johansson you know, starts in red-hot form, he gets into red-hot form at some point in the near future, I think we'll see those guys. But until that happens, until we start seeing 
really real production from these players and and until Berhalter sees transitionable skills translate skills that will translate from Mm -hmm. their club to the national team I don't think we're going to see those guys in the in the national team Uh, I agree and since I don't have much else to add I want to go back to that like uh, Berhalter point for a moment because in the extra time uh, interview which uh, I know Joe you've listened you've listened to already but for people who haven't he does talk about sort of how they evaluate players and if they're ready for the national team and he said uh, paraphrasing but like Every weekend, coaches are assigned to watch certain games and analyze certain players. Then on Tuesday, I think it was, there's a uh, like a f- call that lasts five hours in which they discuss player ratings, what players are doing, things like that. And he seemed sort of surprised that the entire Extra Time crew was like, yeah, we want to be in on that. How do we get it? And he was like, oh, you guys don't want to listen to that. And they're like, yes, we definitely do. Like, did you find that strange? Like, more so just not even asking about like how they evaluate players or anything like that. I was just sort of shocked that he thought that people who – like care about soccer, write about soccer, talk about soccer multiple days a week, wouldn't want to know how they evaluate foreign talent. I had the same thought. He did seem taken aback when when that whole crew was very interested in in being allowed to sit in on that call. And I I mean, I know you and I would both have the same reaction. I would jump at the chance. I would pay to be on that call, right? We all would. So I I don't know. Maybe Berhalter doesn't quite understand the the fanaticism or just the passion, (laughs) the interest that goes into these games, these camps. I, I, that that was a really interesting segment on that show, and I, you know, hey, Craig, if you want to uh, yeah. hit either one of us up, I think <laughs> we would take advantage of that for sure. We certainly would, because like that that was one of those moments where he just sort of said it offhandedly. But I think there's so much talk about losing dual nationals and how we're not doing enough to recruit and we're not doing doing enough to like develop our own talent, but paying attention to other opportunities out there. For him to just casually mention like, oh no no, it's five hours every single week that we go through and watch everything and talk about all these guys. It sort of was very eye-opening to me about how much work is being done, at least at that level, to see what's going on. He also did also note that like there's no structure in place for contacting younger dual nationals, which was sort of disappointing. I think that was in the Tenorio interview he talked about that. But yeah, I, I echo your sentiment that if he wants some people to sit on the call on mute and not chime in, I won't <laughs> chime in, I promise, but I do want to know – what they're watching, who like how they're evaluating. Are they like, oh, this guy could turn under pressure so he can be our number eight? Like, is that how they're looking at it? I know Berhalter doesn't like numbers, but just to get some of those ideas and those concepts in place would be pretty fascinating. And I was surprised that he was uh, surprised. Yeah, I think that whole idea of how a federation, a national federation looks at and evaluates players, even within their own pool. Those of us on the outside just don't have any understanding of what that process is like. I mean, I I wouldn't have been able to tell you, you know, before that interview how Berhalter and his staff are going through and evaluating players that that they're looking to call up. Mm-hmm. So that whole process was extremely interesting and and a little encouraging, frankly. The the whole dual national younger players thing is is an entirely different topic that is much less encouraging, but. In terms of senior team eligible or, or senior team level guys that are getting consistent club minutes, it's really cool personally to me to hear Berhalter talk about how much work and, and, the, and the analysis that goes into monitoring these players. I think that was absolutely fascinating. All right. Well, uh, hopefully we, we get more insight on that one. Hopefully you and I get to sit in on a phone call. But until then, <laughs> uh, a couple more questions for you. Uh, one about Paxton Pomacall, who Berhalter, it sounds like like basically if you take Berhalter's uh, comments together, it sounds like maybe he's not going to get that many minutes, but they wanted to bring him in to give him like a taste of the national team and see how he does 
playing with those uh, like that caliber of player. Uh, but for people who are maybe less uh, familiar or for Tim Betancourt specifically, uh, what other former or current player would you compare uh, to Pomacal? Uh, could be an American player, could be just any player in the world. Just who do you think like has a similar style of play, similar skill sets that maybe uh, people could then understand Pomacal a bit more? So this is a very generous comparison to Paul McCall, and it's it's not a perfect one, but there is Messy. some merit to it. So hear me out. <laughs> Messy. Perfect. Yeah, we're done here, I think. Um, no, I was going to say Ronaldo. No. Um, Bernardo Silva is a guy, and I, I can't remember, I think it was Daryl who I was talking with this about months ago, and, and that was someone that I think he may have brought up about that, just because he's positionally flexible. And I mean, Paul McCall can play in midfield. We saw him play out wide for the U-20s. It's not ideal. I think his definite position should be in central midfield, but he is flexible and he's comfortable in a lot of different spaces around the field. So that has real value for Berhalter's system because he does want to see those rotations and he wants to see players move in and out of different space. And I think Bernardo Silva is a guy who who can absolutely do that. When you watch him for Manchester City, he's capable of, of playing on on the right wing or coming back into midfield, starting in central midfield and then rotating wide, dropping back deeper. It's I mean, he can kind of move wherever that's that's something that Bernardo Silva is absolutely capable of and Paxton Pomacal is the very 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 you know remedial version of that but there are some similarities in terms of his ability to drift around the field and make plays and combine and then on top of that you also have Pomacal's defensive ability which is maybe outside of Tyler Adams might be kind of the next most energetic high energy high motor kind of guys that the U.S. has available right now so I think he does bring some two-way value as well that I haven't seen a ton of Bernardo Silva recently, but maybe that Silva doesn't quite have. I'm not sure. Uh, well, I mean, I, I appreciate that one. First of all, I did not remember you, you all talking about that one. So uh, <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned it again because that also helps me understand Paxton Pomacal a bit better because I've been excited by him. I, I have watched him play and have enjoyed everything I've seen, and yet I have struggled. Like like Matt Doyle keeps writing about the idea of like him and uh, or Pomacal and Christian Pulisic like switching and one being the wing or one being the number 10 and they can easily interchange and I get that idea but for some reason it takes you saying like Bernardo Silva for me to be like oh yeah okay I get it now that makes total sense I'm, I'm on board now a hundred percent whereas before I was like yeah I guess that could work but like would it work this way or that way and now I'm just like oh yeah Bernardo Silva he could do that and so if Palma calls like Bernardo Silva maybe a bit generous but still it helps me better get that so now I'm all in now I'm all in and if we don't see Paxton Palma call start both games and play all of them <laughs> I'm gonna be furious that's yeah that's totally fair and rational and you're not setting yourself up for disappointment in any way <laughs> thanks for that joe um, no problem. uh one last question for you which maybe could let lead to a larger uh series of questions from trish uh football season murphy make of that which will uh she asked uh basically about statistics and about like soccer stats uh and it's in relation to daryl and i answering a listener question a couple shows ago or maybe a couple weeks ago i don't time is confusing um but it was basically there was this uh question about like do soccer fans use statistics like less frequently are they not as necessarily widely used uh as they are in other sports and our sort of conclusion was that it's because other sports kind of measure in stats like you can write a game report in which uh 
you know, um, Cam Newton went like 20 for 24 and you can get an idea of like, oh, that's decent. And like the, the numbers tell you about the performance. And I think in soccer, that can be a little bit more challenging. That's the very much boiled down summary. Uh, and so Trish was asking basically if you think there are statistics that are, can be utilized for soccer that are maybe slightly more palatable to the average fan because there's lots of recoveries and ball retention and aerial duels won. Those are all useful stats to some extent, but they don't necessarily tell you the kind of story of the game or give you more insight because it can be difficult to sort of codify what exactly a ball recovery is. So to Trisha's question, do you think there are ones that maybe are a bit more palatable, not necessarily easier, but just more like uh, easily utilized in understanding the way the game went? I think if you want to take a general overview of how any one particular soccer game goes and how the flow of the game was expected goals is a really good uh you know methodology to to examine that particular aspect of the game so i for me i kind of live in a bubble where soccer statistics are common because my first foray into kind of writing was with american soccer analysis so those guys over there uh who run that website american soccer analysis do a fantastic job of kind of running a game through a statistical translator for lack of a better term so they i mean they can sort of synthesize how a game went you know visually and then run that through a number of different statistics that they've developed over time and give you an idea of how that game went so for an example lafc just lost to minnesota united at home uh recently i think it was last weekend minnesota united won two nil but you know when you go back and look at the stats and they, they presented in a very easily digestible way. LAFC dominated the game. Minnesota just hit twice on the counter. Essentially, that's kind of what you end up seeing. So I think if you were willing to take more of an, a, a broad look at games, statistics can be very helpful for soccer. If you want more specific things, then you kind of are left to comb through, you know, match reports and, and the statistic websites, whether that's MLSsoccer.com for those games or who scored or, you know, whatever it is. And then it's a little bit more difficult maybe to digest some of those individual things because it's not often as specific. But I think statistics absolutely bring value and should be analyzed when watching soccer games or analyzing them from a tactical perspective as well. So can we, I want to stick with like that, the XG and the Minnesota LAFC game for a moment, because with everything you've just said, like my, my basic takeaway from that would be like, Oh, LAFC had more chances, didn't take them. Minnesota played on the counter and took their two chances. That's how I would sort of like extrapolate that, like that piece of information. Is that how you see it as well? Because that's sort of my frustration with expected goals. And I'm wondering if your take or your perspective is different in a way that then makes me like it more. But to me, it's like, but yeah, but like Minnesota's still taking those two chances on the counter. To me, that tells a story because they had fewer opportunities, but that they were able to take both of them. Like if they only got two and they scored two, then to me, that means like, wow, they've really worked on finishing or they're really expertly finishing these counterattacking moves. Whereas LAFC, like, yeah, they had a bunch of chances, but they just didn't do well. Does that mean they had a bad night? Does that mean they weren't actually that good of chances? Does that mean they just need to work on finishing? And so like, it leaves me with lots of questions that I don't like know how to then answer, which is why maybe I think I stay away from it a bit more. So I'd be, I would love to hear how you approach that sort of uh, statistical breakdown. I think when I look at uh, keeping with that Minnesota United example, that the fact that they scored twice in, in a limited number of chances, you know, maybe if you played that game over again, a hundred times, the number of times that they would likely finish those two chances Mm -hmm. is probably not very high realistically versus LAFC if they're having a higher volume of shots on target from a specific area of the field whether that's inside the box or you know on the left side of the box whatever it is they're more likely to score 
So I think I look at it almost as a clue into how repeatable one result was. So if that game was played a number of times, the odds that LAFC were going to win with the number of shots that they had is, is probably higher than Minnesota with their fewer number of shots, even though they did capitalize on their chances. So I don't know if, you know, there's this whole question of, of whether finishing statistically should be measured or, or can be measured or, or things like that, because it often is a numbers game. If you repeat an event enough times, it kind of just does boil down to the number of chances that you get regardless of how you finish them. So it's a whole it's a whole complicated topic. And frankly, I'm not smart enough to, to be able to come down on one side or the other. But I do think expected goals, if you, especially if you look at it over the course of a season or a string of games, can be a helpful statistic to help kind of guide you to how a team plays and, and the type of chances they create. But you're right, it absolutely can be potentially misleading for single results. So I think it is best looked at as a more general, broad overview for a number of games. And then are there other statistics? Like when you said uh, the guys or the folks at American Soccer Analysis can kind of like run the game through and kind of get like a statistical breakdown that makes sense and explains the game. Like are there other stats in there that you you look to uh, like as, as soon as the whistle goes or are you sort of like letting your eyes do the explaining and then you look to the statistics to see whether or not you were right like if you thought Reggie Cannon lost the ball a lot are you then going to see if Reggie Cannon lost the ball or do you check other statistics to give you an idea of the game first I mean I think ideally you're kind of doing both at the same time you're using your eyes to to go with the numbers and the numbers to kind of back what you're seeing so if you're looking at only looking at numbers to validate the tactical takeaways. I mean, I think everyone kind of deals with this when they're trying to construct ideas and, and takes. If you're just backing, finding numbers that specifically fit your narrative, that's probably not the best way to utilize the yeah. statistics. So it's a, it's a push and pull for sure. But I think going through and looking at statistics t- to back up what you see, but then also being willing to reevaluate what you saw and say, wow, this doesn't fit with the numbers that have been put in here by a computer that probably isn't wrong, then you need to reevaluate where you're coming from. So it's a push and pull. And I think as soccer statistics become more mainstream, we'll start to see them trickle in and see more informative analysis based off of both visual tactical takeaways and then also statistical analysis as well. I should have said this up front as soon as we started talking about statistics, but this is probably already very clear to listeners, but I am not very good with statistics. I'm not very good with numbers. So this is, I'm aware, the equivalent of like a toddler asking a professor, like, but wait, how do numbers work exactly? And like, why does this number not mean that number? So apologies for that, but it is just, it's a thing that I would like to better understand because to your point about statistics, that's what kind of annoys me about them is that they can be like utilized in whatever way the person needs to structure an argument. Whereas I like the idea of being able to look at the numbers and see if what I thought happened is what happened. And so like, but not even like to prove an argument, but just more so I like the idea of like being able to look at numbers and say like, oh, this was actually a better game than I thought it was because these numbers indicate it was. And I guess that's where I am right now is like maybe that's what expected goals can be is sort of a way to look at a game and see if there were more better high quality chances than I realized. And maybe that then makes me look back at the game a little bit differently. Is that an okay way to approach it? Or am I still maybe not getting it? No, I think I think that's an okay way to approach it. I think any combination of like reliance on on statistics and numbers and visual information that you've gathered yourself from watching a game or for any of us doing this, I think is good. I think that's a, a good balance to try to seek out, trying to trying to weigh 
the numbers and also, you know, the visual takeaways that you personally have from a game or that I personally have from a game, I think that's a healthy way to do it and, and a great way to make sure that kind of you're distributing informed analysis from from these games. So I think it's absolutely admirable to try to go back and forth and, and work with that push and pull between the numbers and the, the visual information as well. So then, like, are there other statistics that you think will become more mainstream or will be become more usable or appreciated by soccer fans in the near future aside from expected goals? And second part to that, are there statistics that you don't like that you wish we didn't rely on so much? Like, I'm assuming possession is in there. I'm not sure why, but possession seems to be a statistic that some people love and a lot of people hate. Yeah, I mean, looking at the second part of that question first, the the statistics that I try not to let inform my my understanding too much possession is absolutely one of them but at the same time i do think it is helpful to sort of get a very very general understanding of how the game went if you haven't watched it yet seeing a team dominated possession kind of gives you an idea of how they want to play in some situations but another one that i really don't like is is just the very raw passing numbers which kind of fits in that like passing accuracy mm-hmm. is something that you see a lot I could have 100% passing accuracy as a center back if I just passed it five yards to my my center back partner over and over again. So that's a really, really unfortunate way to measure, you know, the quality of a center back. If you're looking at, wow, he has great accuracy. It's, it's not good enough. That's not a complete picture of what that player is doing. So that's, that's one I try to dig a little bit deeper in. Sometimes you can go and find the distance that they're passing as well. And if they're passing a long distance and still have good accuracy, then you can start to get an idea of, of their quality on the ball. All right. In terms of other stats, yeah, oh, sorry, no, that's, no, no, that's what I was going to ask. Is like, so then what? Like, would it be like, is it packing stats? Is that the one? I always forget the actual term for like yeah. passes that eliminate defenders. Like, is that what you would prefer to see utilized? Packing stats is, is a good one. I think any combination, and I, I don't know exactly how you would go about finding this, but any combination that gives you an idea of both accuracy and distance, and even even from position on the field, or you know the number of times that that certain passes go like maybe the teammate that you're passing to or the area that you're passing to and from i think honestly the guys at american soccer analysis are are really coming up with some interesting passing visuals so elliot mckinley on twitter uh the dummy run there's there's a lot of these guys i couldn't name everyone because there are so many of them that are doing really spectacular stuff like go go on american soccer analysis and research these guys and and the work that they're doing because it it really is fascinating and i hope it does become mainstream you know, if, in the near future, I don't know how likely that is just because it does seem like soccer fans are, you know, reticent to adopt the statistical influence that a lot of other sports have. And I think there's lots of different reasons for that. But there are some pretty impressive visuals and, and other stats that are coming out that these guys are putting out there that does help me personally understand the game better. All right. And as long as you're out there reading other people's stuff and learning about other people and their thoughts on the game, they should also probably learn some more about Joe Lowry. Joe, how can people keep up to date with what you're doing and uh, the work that you're doing uh, in the soccer realm? Yeah, so you can first follow me on Twitter at Joe in cleats. Uh, that's where you can find all, I always make sure I have all my writing there, my tactic stuff, my you know stuff, whatever, all that stuff is on there. Uh, most of my writing is at The Athletic, so I hope to have a couple of maybe different style pieces coming out there pretty soon. I still will have some tactical stuff, hopefully, about these national team games coming up pretty soon as they happen, but also some, some maybe some future style stuff or profiles as well. Uh, so keep your eyes peeled for that. And then if uh, you're listening to this and you're from Phoenix, Arizona, or just for some reason want to hear more about USL, 
You can follow my other Twitter account, at Rising Tactics, which is all about Phoenix Rising, who is on a 17-game winning streak, the longest in professional soccer right now. So it's a great story, good team, fun to watch. Check it out. And I should end it there because that's a perfect note to end on, but <laughs> I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about Phoenix for a moment. How How is it, if you were giving the kind of like elevator summary of the season, how is it that they've managed to put together that run, or is it all just dollar beer night? Uh, I know, some of it is dollar beer night. I'd okay, be lying if I said it wasn't. But the team is an extremely talented roster, first of all. They, they have tons of guys on that squad who could be playing at different levels around the world or, or higher up in the United States. They have talent. The coaching staff, I, I genuinely think from a tactical perspective and from a, a man management perspective, is genuinely quality. I think they, they know what they're doing and they've they've shown that this season, regardless of the win streak, you know, independent of that. They've they've built an impressive club. Uh it's it's a great story. It's the games are insane. There's just an atmosphere around this team right now. They could lose on Saturday for all I know, but th- regardless, the atmosphere around the team is I've never felt anything like it in like all of my years as a sports fan and involved sort of on the media side of things as well. It's it's pretty spectacular. All right. Well, that seems like a good note to end on. So, Joe, thank you very, very much. Definitely follow uh, at Joe and Cleats on Twitter. And uh, hopefully Joe continues to make appearances until the, the day when he eventually makes it to the East Coast and can uh, do one of these in studio. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Thanks again for having me, Taylor. I always enjoy it. 